Well, you can have a seed harvest. Some of you are probably thinking right now and, and looking at me right now and thinking that I either overslept, I missed the, men, uh, the normal way things go around here. Uh, the truth is, is you're right, I don't belong here. <clears throat> and uh, I have no desire to be up here this morning. I um, apparently mouthed off too much in staff meeting, <laughs> and this is now my punishment. But uh, since, because I don't get to be up here very often in this capacity, um, uh, I will expect that you guys show me a little bit of grace today, and um, that the Lord will uh, use this time for himself. Okay. <clears throat> This is going to be weird. <laughs> this has been a very, very strange week for me. And a very, like even this morning, it's like, what am I doing? So uh, that's, my, that's why Doug and I get along so well. We have this like cry thing that happens. Uh, it's, it's, so, it's so ridiculous. Oh, it's so embarrassing. It's like, so anyway, um, I don't get a chance to do this very often. And so I do want to say this, okay? Um, I want to, um, I, I have the spiritual gift of um, like tearing things down. I don't have the spiritual gift of encouragement. And uh, those that are on my worship team know this and feel this on a week-in and week-out basis. I'm very, very hard on them. And so this morning, I, want, uh, I just want to publicly, before the congregation today, uh, tell you that I am so privileged to work alongside some amazing people, um, very talented, gifted, love the Lord people in the worship team that serves here. And uh, it is a privilege to serve with them. And I, and I want you to know that. And I want you to hear that from me. And I want them to hear that from me. You guys are loved. And I appreciate you. I also appreciate and I'm thankful for this congregation as well. Um, you are a, uh, a great worshiping congregation um, even this morning, uh, with my ears unplugged, normally I have these things in my ears that cause me to have a little bit of disconnect between us, uh, but this morning, just the, the way you worship loudly and before the Lord, and you do it, and you make it easy um, to lead you uh, to Jesus, and so I'm grateful for you, and I want to I just tell you that, and thank you for, for that, and for making it easy to be the worship pastor here, and as um, Pastor Chris already said, we're, we're starting a new series today. We're uh, starting a series about We Are, and it's a, a, a series about our four pillars. And um, we, uh, we haven't done a series about the four pillars since 2012. And um, back in 2012, we were just under 500 people. We were meeting at the theater just a couple blocks down. And uh, there was four of us on staff, and we were right in the middle of a building program, okay? And now you're sitting, it's 2016, you're sitting in the building that we were right in the middle of trying to figure out how we could do and pay for and plan for, 
And then we've almost doubled in size. We're a little over 900 people now on a, on a week-in and week-out basis. And we've also doubled in size as a staff. There's like, I don't know how many people on staff here anymore. And, um, and, and so uh, we, we felt like, okay, there's four to 500 new people here. How do we get the DNA of who we are uh, at Harvest? How do we get the DNA before these new people? How do we keep them before the people that have been here for a while and around, uh, around for a while? And how do we keep that a, a massive part of who we are? And so we, we thought about doing this, this four-pillar series, but we wanted to flip it upside down on its head just a little bit. Normally, when an organization comes to you and says, here's the four things that we're about, and then they roll out 15,000 programs to say, this is what we're about and this is how we do it, rather than doing that, rather than selling you on the organizational four things that are important to us, we're saying we are, like each individual How can we make these four things as a follower of Jesus Christ, how can they impact us such a way in a personal way that we walk around as followers of Christ with these things happening in our daily lives and then organically as each person in here uh, goes after these things, then naturally they're going to come out in this church and they're going to come out in a way better way than it would be if they just came from us telling you that's what we are as an organization. So we're asking you over the next several weeks to spend time thinking about, is this me? Are we this? Am I this? We are. And so next week, Rick Donald, we are unapologetic We proclaim the authority of God's word without apology. Then, uh, Pastor Cody, we are unafraid. We share the good news of Jesus with boldness. And then uh, we are unceasing. Um, Pastor Eric, a couple weeks after that, is going to talk to us about we believe firmly in the power of prayer. And then one of our elders is going to come in there someplace and uh, on uh, Valentine's Day uh, stir us up about love. So, but today, as your worship pastor, it is my job to talk to us about, today we are unashamed. We lift high the name of Jesus in worship. And uh, to to guide us in our journey today, I want you to turn to Isaiah 6. I'm going to spend most of our time in Isaiah 6 today. Isaiah 6 is a is a passage in the Old Testament, another throne room passage. And uh, we've been spending the last year in Revelation and looking at a lot of things going on in heaven in the throne room in the future. And now we're going to take a look in Isaiah 6 and see what was going on in the throne room in heaven in the past as well. And I think we will see a lot of similarities from Revelation and we will also see um, a pattern of, of worship uh, for the unashamed worshiper, a pattern that we can look at and see. Well, let's look at Isaiah 6, and you be asking the Lord, even as we dig our hearts and our minds into his word, you be asking the Lord to show you uh, what it is that he has for you today. So verse 1, Isaiah 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died. So that gives us a little bit of a time frame in this passage. 
Um, We know from history and from God's word that this is somewhere around 754 B.C., and you may be asking, I don't care. I don't know why 754 matters. I think there's one reason why Isaiah is telling us this. He's telling us this because there's some pretty incredible things that he's getting ready to talk to us about, and, uh, and they're kind of unbelievable. And when someone comes to you with something that's unbelievable, you're kind of like, yeah, right. But if they give you like some more details about it, you're like, okay, maybe that really did happen to them. And so I think he's kind of giving us a little bit of time frame to show us, hey, this happened to me. This is something that I experienced. This changed the way I thought about the Lord. And so 754 BC, and then he says something about King Uzziah. All right, now we need to look and see who this King Uzziah character is. Um, so turn with me real quick. Keep your finger in Isaiah 6. Turn with me real quick uh, several chapters back into 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 26. 2 Chronicles 26. And what we'll find there is King Uzziah became king in Jerusalem of the kingdom of Judea around the, eight, the ripe old age of 16, ripe old age of 16, and uh, he reigned for 52 years. In verse 4 of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 26, it says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. This King Uzziah guy seems like he had it going on. Like, what a smart 16-year-old king, right? I wish I had been that smart as a 16-year-old to uh, do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, to set himself to seek the Lord. He purposed himself to seek the Lord. And then he even surrounded himself with a mentor in Zechariah to learn what it, what it meant to fear the Lord. And then everything that he did prospered. And he prospered and the country prospered and all was going very well for King Uzziah. Second half of verse 15. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, and in your mind you should be hearing, dun, 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 he grew proud. He grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. Behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, 
and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. Well, let's talk a little bit about what this thing that Uzziah did that was so bad, okay? Uh, pretty bad that uh, the Lord struck him with leprosy. Now, we're going to use this bird's eye view today of the tabernacle to kind of show us a little bit of what goes on in temple worship of, uh, in, in the ancient days of Israel be before Christ, okay? Uh, this is a view of the tabernacle. The temple gets a little bit more complicated and kind of hard to see if you do an overview of it. So we're just going to go to the tabernacle. Trust me, the same thing's going to the tabernacle. Go on in the temple, okay? So... King Uzziah goes from the outer courtyard and uh, where everybody's allowed to be and sacrifices happen out here and Israel is allowed to be there. And then you got this pink line right here. It's a door into the holy place. And then you can see right here, this box right here, it's the altar of incense. That door of the holy place, not allowed to go in. Okay, the only people that are allowed to go in there are the Levitical priests, the sons of Aaron. They're the only ones that are able to go in there and to burn incense before the Lord and prepare to, for the holy place. And then they're only allowed to go into the holy place very specifically one time a year. The King Uzziah, well, he had grown, remember, he had grown proud to his destruction. And pride has a tendency to make us do foolish things. And so he went in to burn incense. And he didn't belong there. And I think there's a warning here for us. Warning for the unashamed worshiper. Pride is the enemy of worship. Pride is rooted in being stuck in the horizontal. You think you can only think about yourself and what's around you and how everything revolves around you and how you are on the throne and how everything that you think is right and that path leads to destruction. Where pride exists, worship does not. Where pride exists, worship does not. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So God vehemently opposes the proud. That is scary, scary stuff. To have the living God opposing you, trust me, is not the place where you want to find yourself. I think it also shows us here that worship should not be approached lightly. God has ways that we are supposed to approach him. Thank the Lord we live in the New Testament era where we're not having all these same rules and we make one wrong move and we're struck with leprosy. Thank the Lord that we're not in those days. But I think the principle still remains that God is serious about his glory and he is serious about worship before him and it should not be taken lightly Sometimes in our casual coffee bar, God's my buddy, entertain me culture, we lose sight of who we are seeking. We lose sight of who we are seeking. This is God, and we should not approach him lightly. All right, so 
there's a warning in the first four words of Isaiah. But, uh, so let's not be like Uzziah, but let's maybe see a pattern here in the, le- the, in the rest of Isaiah 6 from Isaiah of maybe what we should be, a pattern for the unashamed worshiper. Let's continue back in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, warning, but then Isaiah, I saw the Lord. Now the word for Lord here that's used is Adonai. And Adonai um, shows us a lot about God's authority, okay? Um, His absolute authority and rule, that's what Adonai shows us. And we know that that who we are seeing, he said, I saw the Lord. This person that we're seeing here on this throne, this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. We know this because in John 12, uh, John is speaking about Isaiah, and he tells us in John 12, 41, he is talking about Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, speaking of Jesus, his glory, and spoke of him. So Isaiah is seeing the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ here, And over the last year, we've been seeing the magnified, glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ. And uh, God's been showing us a lot about that Jesus. And uh, I'm here to tell you today that the same Jesus in Isaiah is just as big, just as grand, and shows us the exact same realities of the future Jesus, shows us he is the same then, he is the same now, and he will be the same for all of eternity until he comes. So verse one, we continue and say, Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Does that remind you of anything? Remind you of anything over the last year? He's sitting upon a throne. Um, Back to uh, Revelation uh, 4, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. Jesus was, is going to be seated in the future. He is seated now, and Isaiah is showing us that he was seated back then, showing more authority, showing more, I've got this under control. Um, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Jesus' name, Adonai, showed authority. His posture in his sitting on this throne showed us his authority. And now his position in this place, high and lifted up, shows his authority as well. Everything is below him. He can see everything from his penthouse place. He sees eternity past. He sees eternity future. He sees everything that is going on at all times. And it's all under him. It's all in his control. He's got it. No sweat. And then we see there's more, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, we, we don't understand robes very well. You know, when we think of robes, we think of, you know, these Terry robes that are in these nice hotels. It has Hilton right here. That is not the robe that we're talking about. And then when we think of trains, we think of uh, wedding dresses and these long trains. And 
Trust me, Jesus is not wearing a wedding dress, okay? All right, that is not our God. He is wearing a kingly robe, okay? And the, the people of this day would totally understand this. They would see, see this word robe and the train of this robe, and they would understand it. And a kingly robe back in those times, the longer the robe, the more authority this king had and the more victories this king had had. See, they would go around and they would try to conquer one another. And when they would conquer someone, another king, they would go to that king's robe. They would rip off a part of his robe or tear off a part of his robe. They would cut it off and then they would sew it onto their own robe so that the train of their robe would continue to grow and continue to show their authority and their victories. Now, picture this. Jesus' robe in this place is not just filling up the throne area. It's not just filling up part of the room. It's filling up the entire room. His, his robe is filling, the train of his robe fills the temple. Are you seeing the picture of Christ's authority? See the absolute, undeniable authority here in Isaiah 6. Well, the unashamed worshiper starts with seeing. See the Lord is the first part of our pattern. And you're probably looking at me like, really? See the Lord? Where'd you get that from? Doug's been talking about that for two weeks. And uh, even in the midst of him talking about that over the last couple weeks, I've been I was wrestling with, do I need to change the passage that I'm going to speak about? I had this picked out over a month ago, and, and then the Lord spoke to me, um, not audibly, but just the Spirit kind of said, no, this is a pattern in my word. I have to tell these stubborn people all the time to see me. And see me like I revealed myself to be, not who you want me to be. See me like Isaiah saw me. Don't see me like Uzziah saw me. But how? How can we see the Lord? God hasn't given me any dreams or called out to me in an audible voice. Uh, I'm looking around at everything around me and I see destruction and, and just pain and sickness. And I, I, it's hard for me to see the Lord at times. Well, worship is birthed out of revelation. And how has God revealed himself to us? God has revealed himself to us in his word. And this is where we get our revelation of who Jesus is. And this is the source of our worship. Now, this analogy is going to break down on a lot of levels, okay? So bear with me. But if you've been living in a deep, dark hole for the last couple months, there's been kind of this big movie that's come out it's called Star Wars, Force Awakens, okay? And uh, um, there's been two types of people, I think, that have gone and seen this movie. There's one type of person that has seen all of the Star Wars movies. They know everything about it. They know the color of Yoda's lightsaber. They know the name of every planet that's in the systems, and they know it all. And then there's another type of person that, that goes and see this movie and like, this is supposed to be a big deal, so I think I'll go watch the movie and see what it's all about. 
okay? And then, so, this first group of people, when Han Solo and Chewie walk onto the Millennium Falcon in the theater, they are cheering, and they are shouting, and they are clapping, and then the other group of people are looking around like, what just happened? People just walked into the scene. Why are they cheering? They don't get it. They haven't seen the movies. They haven't studied them. I think the same thing happens with people in worship too. People come into this place and we start talking about our Lord and our Savior and what has happened and the people that get it, the people who have been studying and who have been looking into the revealed word of Jesus Christ, they come in and they're like, yes, that's what we're here for. That's what to get excited about. And then there's some people that walk in here like, I, I don't get it. I don't quite understand why people are so excited. And I think that second group of people needs to ask themselves, am I seeing the Lord? And am I spending time figuring out how to see the Lord? Am I seeing the Lord? Well, let's keep looking at this revelation that Isaiah is getting here in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. It's the only time in Scripture that we see something about these angels called seraphim. And so we don't know a whole lot about the seraphim. Seraphim means burning ones, and uh, we know that they have six wings. And you can go to a billion commentaries and find a billion different things that people think that those six wings mean and what these seraphim are, and I don't care necessarily. I'm not sure that's the point of this passage at all. But here's what we do know in verse 3, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy. You've heard us talk about holy, right? Holy means set apart. When we see three holies here, it's perfectly set apart. It means with, without sin. Christ's holiness is his prime, most essential, most preeminent attribute. And it is not the popular attribute these days. This day and age, the culture and even the church culture wants loving, 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 or faithful, 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 or tolerant, tolerant, tolerant is the Lord of hosts. But he is reminding us here that he's not like us. He's God. He's the only one that's holy. He's loving, yes, he's loving, but he's perfectly holy in his loving. It's a set-apart love that we don't understand. He's patient, yes, but he's not patient to the sacrifice of his holiness. His holiness is where his wrath originates from. It's where his righteous indignation towards sin originates from. And it's the most awesome, most misunderstood attribute of God. And in reality, we can't even fully grasp it. 
Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes this, Neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept simply the best to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The the natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. Tozer goes on and says, only the spirit of the Holy One can impart to the human spirit the knowledge of the Holy So picture this, we've got these seraphim, these burning ones, and they're calling back and forth to one one another, trying to outdo one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And they're just going back and forth, so much so, so loud, so much so that we see in verse five, In verse four, sorry, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke so loud and so much of Christ's glory that the place couldn't even stand it. The foundations of the the threshold shook. Can you hear that awesome scene? Can you imagine how holy our God is. I think the second um, pattern after seeing the Lord is hearing the Lord. You know, I want to ask you what kinds of things in your life are giving you opportunities to hear from the Lord. Is there even space in your week where you stop and allow the Lord to speak through his word or through another believer or something edifying? Or is the only edifying thing that you hear in a given week when you walk into this place? Now, hear me. I'm not saying you can't listen to the news or listen to talk radio or watch Sports Center. Or listen to country music. I'd prefer you not listen to country music. But that's a personal thing. Bluegrass is probably the worst. Totally kidding. Totally kidding. Not saying that those things are bad, but what I am saying, and and what I am thinking that the Lord is asking of us, are you hearing me? Are you just hearing the noise around you? Well, Isaiah heard the Lord, and it became too much for him. All this revelation that he was seeing and hearing of Jesus Christ, his his authority, his power, his perfect holiness, and in his soul he knew 
It demanded a response. Verse 5, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe. In this context, woe is an extreme sorrow, utter despair. After seeing the holiness of God and examining himself, utter despair. Woe is me. He is torn up about his sinful state. And he is confessing his sinful state before the Lord and showing his weakness before the Lord. Remember back to Uzziah and pride being his destruction? Worship flows out of weakness. Psalm 51, 17, what kind of heart is God looking for? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Worship flows out of weakness for I am lost. He knows that he isn't holy like what he just saw and experienced and there is nothing within him that can be that. He doesn't know anything except that he's broken and he can't fix it. I'm lost. I can't find myself. Humility. Humility. That is right where God wants Isaiah. That's right where God wants us. I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Not only does he recognize that he is lost, everything around him is lost. He lives in a cesspool of lostness. When was the last time you were that deeply moved about your position before the Lord? Another pattern of the unashamed worshiper is they respond to revelation. Respond to revelation. Isaiah responded to the, what was being revealed to him about Jesus Christ, and he responded to his holiness and his authority, and he responded with a, a head knowledge. I'm lost. I got no idea what I'm going to do. And he, and he responded with an emotional response as well. Woe is me. It moved him emotionally as well. I've always loved uh, Warren Wearsby's definition of worship. Worship is the believer's response of all that they are, mind, emotions, will, and body to what God is and says and done and, and does. Responding to revelation. Are you unashamed to respond to God with all that you are? Or are you good with just being an emotional only worshiper? I don't need the, the knowledge of what's going on. I can just give God my emotions and that emotional fervor will be all that he needs? Or are you on the other side of the spectrum and you're like, 
I am a big fat egghead and I'm giving him all of my knowledge and that's all he needs. God made every fiber of your being. He made your emotions. He made your mind. He made your will and your body and he longs for all of it in response back to his revelation. You might be thinking, even as we see this woe part of Isaiah 6, you might be thinking, well, that's strange. I thought we were talking about the unashamed worshiper. It, it seems like Isaiah is actually kind of a shamed worshiper. Like, like he's kind of cowering in fear and, and he's ashamed of who he is before the Lord. Here's the crux of it all. Here's the reason why you and I gather and why you and I have reason to worship. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your Sin is atoned for. Now we're going to take a look at this, this uh, tabernacle picture again because you're kind of looking at like, okay, he just got a coal on his lips and boom, you're good. Don't get it. Understand. Okay, now we're back here at this bird's eye view of the, the, the tabernacle and you see this outer court over here and you see it's called the altar of burnt offerings or it's also called sometimes the brazen altar. Okay, so a person would come in for a sin offering to the outer courts. They would bring their animal. They would lay the animal on the altar. All right, they would place their hand on the head of the animal representing Picturing their sin being transferred to this animal, okay? And then the priest would kill the animal, harvest some of his blood, take it into the holy place, sprinkle it in front of the veil before the holy of holies. Then they would come back and then they would burn this sacrifice. And they would pour the rest of the blood down at the basin of this sacrifice and they would burn it and then they would be able to say that their sin was atoned for for now. And Isaiah would have that picture in his mind when he saw this angel going over to this brazen altar and picking up this coal and bringing it to his mouth and, and declaring, your sin is atoned for. He would see all of those animals and all of that blood all over those, those burning coals and he would see it coming towards him. And you and I, have another picture that we should be seeing right now. See, all of this was just a shadow of the things that would come in Jesus Christ. We don't need that altar of burnt offerings anymore. Christ was the final sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 11 through 13 says... And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's he's sitting. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those that are being sacrificed. It is because of Jesus. Once and for all, Jesus makes us right. He declares over us that our sin is atoned for. We can be and we are unashamed because we lift high the name of Jesus in this place and in our lives on a, daily, on a daily basis. It is because of Jesus and his sacrifice that we can be the unashamed worshiper. We don't have to be the shamed worshiper cowering before the Lord. He even tells us we, because of Jesus, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. This is the rallying cry for every unashamed worshiper. Romans 8, 1 through 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We can worship unashamed Because of Jesus Christ. Well, the last part, the last part of this pattern for the unashamed worshiper respond through service. Let's look at verse 8. And I heard the Lord, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. See, after Isaiah responds with his mind and his emotions, he is now going to respond with his will and his body. And you're going to see over the next month or so that all of these four things that we're talking about, they're all connected because where we're going now, this is probably more Cody's week than anything but just a precursor to that. After we see the Lord and hear the Lord and respond to his revelation, it's not, oh, thanks, Lord. Thanks for that. Wow, how cool is that? No. Uh, And then I'm gonna go on and just kind of do my thing and me and God are good and we're good, right? It's good. It's good. It's not good. Nope, you didn't see or hear like you think you did. The pattern in Scripture is see, hear, respond to revelation, and then respond in service. Nope, it's here I am. Here am I, Lord. Help me do what you want me to do. I'll be your mouthpiece. I'll be whatever you need me to be, Lord. Yes, Lord, I see that need. I'll take care of that. I'll be your hands and feet. Worship is to be a transforming experience that results in service that transforms the world around us. It doesn't just stop at worship here on this earth. It continues 
into service. Your encounters with God should not leave you the same. They should call you to more, call you to higher things and greater things for him. And no, they're not always going to be calls to missions work or full-time ministry. But there should be something going on in your soul for his glory on a daily basis. There should be some kind of obedient action that takes place in the unashamed worshiper. And if there is no action, you need to ask yourself the question, am I a Pharisee? And in vain do I worship the Lord because my heart is far from him. Don't get it backwards. Your work for the Lord, your service for the Lord isn't necessarily worship. I love what Tozer says in another book, The Purpose of Man. A worshiper can work with eternal quality in his work. But a worker who does not worship is only piling up wood, hay, and stubble for the time when God sets the world on fire. God wants worshipers before he wants workers. He calls us back to that for which we were created, to worship the Lord God and to enjoy him forever. And then out of our deep worship flows our work for him. Our work is only acceptable to God if our worship is acceptable. So we, on this earth, we respond in service, and then one day, that service will be no longer needed when Christ comes back. Then it will be worship for eternity. You know, worship is one of the only things that we're gonna be doing in this life that we'll be doing forever. And so... The unashamed worshiper sees the Lord. The unashamed worshiper hears the Lord. And then they respond to that revelation with all of their being. And then they respond in service. Harvest, we are. And if you're not today, you can be. The call to Jesus as your Savior is open today. We are unashamed. We lift high the name of Jesus in worship. And may that grow among us in our hearts in our weeks, in our gatherings. And then scripture tells us that he put a new song in my heart, a hymn of praise to our God, and many will see and fear and put their trust in him. And our worship will be an example to this world of what a follower of Christ looks like. Let's pray together. Father, This is your word and your call to us. 
And Father, we cannot do this in and of our own strength. This is your spirit's work among us and in us and through us. And we ask that you would work in every heart in this room this morning for your glory, that you would expose areas of pride, expose areas of carelessness before you, and expose areas that need a turning towards you, a turning away from the world, and a turning towards you. May we see and experience Jesus Christ for who he is and worship him rightly because we have seen you and heard you and are compelled to respond to that. And we thank you. We praise you for your word. Use it as you would. In Christ's name, amen.